0: God is a God of hope and the flood marks a new era of God's covenant with this creation. God is not going to wipe out humanity and start with a new creation, but instead is going to reassert his design for heaven and earth. God is greatly troubled by the corrupting power of sin and a world without God's order is bent towards endless decay. Today we're going to discuss the great flood that Noah endured and we're going to talk about how God sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to make way for humanity to be free of sin and its destructive consequences. On the day of Pentecost, there was a new opportunity for holiness, the Holy Spirit come in power to rest on humanity so that people could really be free from sin, the sin that would, many thousand years ago, put the world towards decay there in the events before the flood. Welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor Jay Dylan Proctor, and here with me in the studio is Pastor
1: Anthony Allegria
0: and let's get right into the story of genesis today so anthony would you begin for us in genesis chapter 7 verses 6 through 24. noah was 600 years old when the flood of
1: waters came on the earth and noah with his sons and his wife and his son's wives went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month of the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. The rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah with his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, And the three wives of his sons entered the ark. They and every wild animal of every kind, and all domestic animals of every kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every bird of every kind, every bird, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily that the earth so mightily on the earth, that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarmed the earth, and all human beings. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything living that was on the face of the ground. Human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark and the water swelled on the earth one hundred and fifty days.
0: Alright, so the Ark is a very interesting vessel. It's not the sort of seaworthy vessel we see commissioned for ordinary marine voyages. It needs neither a screw for propulsion nor a crew to man it. It is without moorings and it drifts along like a raft. Its cargo consists of living beings clenched for survival in the midst of catastrophe. Noah's role is also rather fascinating here because it's not something we would traditionally think of when we think of someone out on a sea vessel. Noah's role is not to be a wise captain or perhaps even a skilled helmsman. He lacks a crew to command because this is not needed for this particular trip. This is not the sort of journey where such things are necessary. His vessel is a raft with a singular purpose of survival. And this vessel, it is not controlled by man. It is guided by forces which are far beyond Noah's control. And this is very precarious because often in life we desire to be the ones in control. We have a journey that we're going on, and there are storms in life, and we don't always like to be subject to the mercy of God. But Noah, in this moment, he is at the mercy of God. While Noah's ark is a vessel, it is one that lacks standard maritime equipment. And this is really important for us to understand, really, the context of what's going on here. This ark has a distinct purpose. It is not your typical maritime vessel. It's neither a merchant ship nor part of a naval fleet. Its charter is simply the covenant that God has with all living beings, which means its goal is to simply stay alive and live until a future day where all life can be fruitful and multiply once again. That is its charter. It is the covenant that God has with life. And that is the purpose of this vessel. Now, when we examine where we're at, life often sets us in places where we really want control. And we find ourselves in circumstances and situations that are beyond our influence. But the God who spoke creation into existence and commanded Noah into the ark along with all of those many living creatures is not one to send people into such danger unprepared. The ark is sufficient for the time it needs to be. It may not have moorings or maritime equipment, but it is not meant to be a permanent residency. It is not meant to be a vessel which is used time and time again for various routes that it will go over time and time again. It is a temporary haven for those sojourning from one era to the next. And during the moments of the flood, Noah and all of those on this journey, they must have patience. They must recognize that the purpose of this is not your typical journey. They must have great patience, and they must endure the storm, and that is often a very difficult thing. Patience is not a virtue that is easily obtained, and there are many enemies of patience. In fact, if we can contemplate this time where Noah is on the ark, there are two great enemies from within ourselves that can make it impossible to endure life in such a scenario life on the ark has two great antagonists and those are despair and haughtiness the fact that this arc likes moorings makes it very inviting to feelings of despair despair is something which can be catastrophic if one is going to endure something with patience furthermore the fact that there's no moorings nor control this bends itself towards haughtiness one might feel disturbed by the lack of control, and they might feel entitled that there should be some sort of control. One should have a competent crew to guide the craft to safety. But again, this is no ordinary voyage, and God has an extraordinary design for it. So Let's talk about despair and haughtiness. Because despair would be something very appealing to one on the ark. You have no control over the vessel. All of humanity outside of the ark is being destroyed. Along with all the creeping things, the animals, the birds of the sky, it's a very catastrophic moment and this is, well, would be legitimately depressing for anyone who spent any time thinking about it. In fact, if you spent too much time wondering about the possibility of something going wrong, you could easily find yourself wrapped up in despair. If you spend too much time focusing on the fact that the barrier between life and death is very thin you're here on this vessel and the walls while they may be made of sturdy wood you know there's not much there even in the sturdiest of ships between you and the storm outside it is only a simple vessel although it is one that is bulky that separates you from the turmoil of the flood and despair in a moment like this and we actually see throughout history oftentimes it drives people to jump straight into the flood There are many times people would rather embrace the certainty of death rather than the indefatigable firmness of will that is necessary for life on the ark. It requires a tireless and enduring firmness of one's conscience will to endure life on the ark, and that is something that is challenging. A lot of times people don't have patience to keep their character up, enduring through a moment of trial. But that is what is demanded for those on the ark. Hauntiness is the other enemy of the mind that might break the integrity of one on the Ark. If one thinks that they are too good to trust God to protect the Ark or they feel like they might be entitled in some way to have authority, they might find themselves tempted to modify the design. But this Ark, it is not designed for controlled excursions. But if one has character that feels that they are too special to trust another power for a successful journey, they might take it upon themselves to start modifying the design of the Ark. But this is also something dangerous. Because the barrier between life and death during this flood is too precarious. And the ark cannot afford two masters. That's an important thing to notice here. Noah, while he is on the ark, he is not actually the master of this vessel. He's not really the captain and he's not the helmsman or really anyone that has part of a typical standard maritime crew. Noah is the one who is chosen by God to really carry through this covenant. He and his family and the life of all the animals that are there, they are living to Basically, just survive for another day. The ark cannot afford two masters, and presumptions of despair and haughtiness are unwarranted antagonists for a faithful journey on the ark. Moreover, such, such presumptions are against the hope that God has for humanity. And after all, this ark it is a vehicle of hope. Anthony, would you pick back up for us in Genesis chapter eight, verses one through four?
1: But God remembered Noah and all of the wild animals and all of the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters gradually receded from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month of the seventeenth day of the month, The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, I guess.
0: Ararat, yeah. So the flood subsides and a new era is coming. This is a very serious moment coming to study the journey of Noah's Ark. Because again, it's not your typical journey. It's not just a pilgrimage or an adventure. It's a moment with clear, distinct, precise eras. There is before the ark where everything is bent towards decay. Humanity was so wrapped up in sin, the lines between heaven and earth, it is blurred, and the world is already on a course for destruction. The catastrophe really doesn't begin with the flood. The catastrophe begins with this moment in time where humanity is continuously bent towards sin. They can't even imagine or ponder anything that is not sin. But humanity is broken, but God is a God of rules. He is not going to destroy them and recreate them in this act of the flood. The flood is not a mere reset of creation. God does not disown humanity and wipe them out to start again. Noah and his families actually are the same species before and after the flood. And God is a God of hope, and he has hope for humanity. And that's an important theme in the story of Noah. Anthony, would you pick up in our last reading from Scripture today, which is in Genesis 9, verses 7 through 17.
1: And you be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, As for me, I am am establishing my covenant with you, and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and myself and every creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on earth.
0: The ark truly is a vessel of hope. It would guide humanity to a new day, where the covenant of God would be asserted with clear rules. As the bow is hung in the sky, and we typically conceptualize this as a rainbow, it is a visible line between the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of the story of Noah, the line between heaven and earth is blurred, and the beings of heaven and earth, well, they're intermingling in unnatural ways. This blurring of worldly design is no longer possible, and we can even realize this when we think of a rainbow. You can see a rainbow, but you can never really touch it. It is beyond our reach. You never really can find the end of a rainbow. And the line between heaven and earth is not something that can be crossed without warrant. You can't just say, ah, I know the secret pathway to heaven. I know how to slip over there and access it. The domain of of the heavenly host and the domain of the earthly beings, they're being set apart clearly. So what happens in that early stages of Genesis 6, that cannot happen again. The order of creation is being reasserted and it takes great force to maintain it. And that brings us into this question of, well, what is the actual state of the cosmos when it is left under unattended? The state of the cosmos, or as one might say, the heavens, the earth, the state of existence, is something that must be subdued and given order, or else it will fall into a state of chaos and suffering. Genesis teaches this this with firm conviction teaches us this with very serious conviction. And I want us to really hear this and drive it home because this is, well, it's fundamental to the Christian worldview. God's order is precious and it is mighty. And without it, there is nothing but chaos and suffering. There is endless decay without God's order. God comes to the void in the beginning of Genesis 1 to give order and life. Genesis 1, the void is conceptualized as these chaotic waters, this darkness. But God comes and he brings humanity And he brings life and he says, humanity, I want you to have dominion over the earth, subdue it. Well, that is the same thing God was doing in those first few days of creation. God comes to the void and he gives order to it. He subdues it because left to itself, well, it just moves towards endless decay and chaos. The default condition of a godless existence is chaos and it is bent towards death. God, when he comes to the void and gives life, Humanity must make good on its duties as the servants of God that reflect his nature to give and subdue life. They give life and they subdue chaos. This is quintessential to what it means to be a human. The default condition of a godless existence is towards chaos. It is bent towards death. But the design of God is wholly organized and life-giving. There are many in our world who think that the world is bent towards some sort of progressive betterment by its own disposition. However, if we actually sit and think about this, we can find contradictions to this everywhere. We think about anything left alone. There's contradictory evidence to this idea that the world is just naturally on a progressive betterment path is just ridiculous. If you think about something like an electronic device, if you leave it alone too long with the batteries, if they're alkaline batteries, they will spill out, they'll leak and they'll destroy it. They'll ruin the device. If you leave a house unattended, it will rot. All the contents inside, they will decay. Just about anything we leave alone, unattended, it will decay and rot away. Something like a car. If you have a collector's car, a lot of times people are tempted to put it in a barn and not do anything with it. But it's extremely hard on a car to sit. In fact, it's a lot harder on a car to sit than it is to have one started up and moved and cycled through every now and then. Decay will come and rot away things left unattended. The world is naturally bent towards decay when it is without God's order. Anthony, what are your thoughts on that? I mean just to your point um
1: what is improved whenever it is left alone what improves the more that you leave it alone i can't think of a single thing where if you don't have an effect on it or somebody else doesn't have an intelligent effect on it it improves of its own accord
0: yeah there are things which cure over time like paint or even people who are making wine but again those things they require Order and organization to even set those things in motion. So the things that do cure over a duration of time, that can only happen when there's order and organization. Left to their own, things never reach that state. The world really is in this state which is, again, the existence goes towards chaos without God's order. In the Old Testament, in all of its serious beauty, it teaches us that God is holy and his people, they too, should be holy. Humanity was not redesigned while in the ark, and this is a really important thing for us to remember. Noah, he survives the ark and he emerges as the exact same species as the one that entered the ark at the start of the flood. God's covenant with life was redefined, but it wasn't redefined in the way that did away with the old and started something new. It wasn't like that. It was a fulfillment and an expansion with a promise that God would never bring about such an event again, that he would never permit his order to be blurred as it was in the beginning of the story of Noah. And when us living today, and we're here in the year thousands later than, than Noah, we live after the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost itself is an extension of this promise that God gives to Noah. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came with power to rest on the human spirit and quicken us for sanctification. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost to rest on humanity, and this day came a short while after Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Pentecost would come long after the flood, in fact, thousands of years later, but it was nonetheless an extension of God's unending desire to give hope to humanity without destroying them in an act of recreation. Anthony?
1: Um, Would you mind telling us exactly
0: what quicken means? Yeah, quicken is an interesting word in English. We often consider it archaic or out of date and we don't like it, but it's actually quite accurate in describing what happens to one who is giving their life over to God. To quicken something means you make it able to perform a task as well as encouraging it to do so. You might think of something like you, you've got a, a kid and he wants to learn to play ball, but he really doesn't know how to hold a bat or how to pitch well. And you go out and they you teach them how to do that and they're really excited. They're encouraged to do it. If you think of something like the movie It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, he is discouraged and forgets how to appreciate his family. And if you know the plot of the movie, he basically says, I wish I had never been born. And he gets to spend some time experiencing the world as if he had never been born. Though eventually he is allowed to return to life as it truly is. And he is quickened for life in that moment. When George Bailey comes back into existence as George Bailey and he still has Mary, his wife and his family, not only is he able to live life again, but he is encouraged to do so. He desires greatly to be with his family. He wants to return to life. He wants to go home and love his family and love life no matter what ill circumstances may befall him. At Pentecost, God sent the Holy Spirit to quicken us for holiness. And that means not only are we made able for holiness, but we're we're moving towards it. We're excited for it. We're able to do it. Sort of like teaching a new sport to a, uh, to a child, even perhaps a sport they've never heard of. You kind of get a new toy for a kid. You know, they may have never known that toy existed, but they see it and it kind of needs to be assembled for them and kind of shown what it can do. And then they're really excited and they want to go have fun with it and they're able to have fun with it. Quickening is that ability, which gives us an ability and also encouragement. And God is not a God who breaks his own rules. And this is clearly revealed in the story of Noah. God needed to do something so that people could live holily. Humanity was reformed while in the ark, but it wasn't transformed there. That's an interesting thing. And while we say reformed, what we mean by that is God says, I'm going to let you be there. I'm not going to redesign you. You're basically just going to endure to a new era. There's going to be some reformation on how I interact with you. But the old covenant's not gonna be discarded and they're not gonna be transformed into something new. They're not gonna be made into a new being when they come out of there. Again, the, the cost of these things are high and the Holy Spirit will come in full much later. Many years after the flood, God would send his begotten son to die on the cross and overcome death. And after Jesus comes, he lives his ministry. Again, this is after the advent of Jesus with Mary, we, we see that Jesus comes and the Holy Spirit there on the day of Pentecost. And those who believe in Christ, they have eternal life. And the Holy Spirit comes to make it possible that people can have this transformation out of sin and into holiness. And this is where the sanctification theology comes in. God is a God of hope and God does not leave us abandoned on a craft without controls or moors to perish in agony. God quickens us for Holy Spirit without breaking his own rules. Pentecost is a wonderful day of hope, and the presence of the Holy Spirit is a wonderful gift of hope. And at the time that I'm preaching this, it is Pentecost Sunday. It comes a few weeks after Easter. And while we do not live in the time of Noah, nor do we live in the time of the New Testament, we can still enjoy the full power of Pentecost. We do not have to live as those who lived prior to the flood who were perpetually bent towards sin. We can be perfected by Christ and live holy lives. Christian perfection is something very important, especially in the Church of the Nazarene. And we must define what Christian perfection is, as it is not the same thing as secular perfection. In English, we use the term perfection to mean a lot of things. Perfection is usually something we mean to say it's without no flaw at all, but we put a lot of things in that category. Um, Secular perfection may be defined as something which has no flaws, but Christian perfection means that we are no longer bent towards sin. Christian perfection is that moment or sanctification as you may call it, Christian perfection and sanctification, they they are the same, when we have been transformed so greatly that our lives are marked by sincere Christ-like behavior. This does not mean that we have all answers to the questions of life or all the wisdom of God stored in our mind, but it means that we are no longer living in sin. Entire sanctification and Christian perfection, these are the moments where someone, they have a work of grace come into their life. Anthony?
1: I will say that um, whenever you were talking about uh, perfection, I just sort of realized that I wanted to say that this difference of perfection is not also just something that Christians decided, okay, well, this is what we're going to call perfection. That way we can say that people are perfect or that way we can say that God really does fulfill uh, his promises to humanity. We're not just uh, sort of coming up with a gimmick to make it so that we can be perfect or anything like that. The word telos is actually perfect. And we use it. We use perfect this way in English as well. Whenever we pick up a rush, a rusty shovel and say, okay, perfect. I found the tool that I needed to use or anything else like that. Or if we pick up an old clarinet and we're like, it's going to work perfect or anything like that. It is, um, the type of perfect that is perfect exactly for the situation for purpose. And so that is, Christian perfection, and it is connected to the the actual Greek word telos, which yeah. is different from the flawless perfection.
0: Yeah, and in English, we have watered down a lot of words, and they've lost their precise meaning. Christian perfection, entire sanctification, these are precise things. And for one who is perfected by Christ, there still is temptation. Even Jesus was enduring temptation in the wilderness. But for those who are perfected by Christ, they are not ruled by the carnal nature that is bent on decay. The Holy Spirit has come on them and they now rule over the carnal nature. For those that are saved, they might feel the Holy Spirit weighing on their soul to bring another work. And this is a moment where the believer is transformed. entire sanctification is a gracious work of God that happens after salvation. One might experience the power of God about to work an act of grace in their life similar to that moment when one was saved. And this act is that of sanctification and it is magnificent which certainly God is not limited to mere two acts of grace or two works of grace. But whenever people feel that weighing something with great magnitude that sanctification is just on the cusp of their life, it is something to behold and is something to be desired and to pursue. Entire Entire sanctification, I've done said that word a lot of times and got myself slipping up, as we understand it, and Christian perfection, they are to be desired and they are beautiful. They are a beautiful fulfillment of the covenant that God makes with Noah. God did not stop by saying that he would not destroy the world with its inhabitants. God went on to do a work that he would eventually send the Holy Spirit so that people could be freed from the wretched sins that set the world on the course for destruction in the first place. God didn't just stop with Noah and say, well, I'm not going to do that again. God was proactive and said, I want to make sure the world doesn't get to that state again. And the Holy Spirit comes, the agent able to truly transform us. And as we, we close this sermon and we close this, this conversation, because really this is a bit more of a talk conversation with Anthony here, I want us to give praise to God for sending the Holy Spirit to let us live in such a way that we're freed from sin and we can be in sanctified. I want us to, to think about the, the concept of sanctification and being praying for this and ask that God would sanctify us more and more that we would always be transformed further into Christ-likeness. So Anthony, as we close this up, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I definitely think it is a really, really beautiful thing and an important
1: thing to remember that God doesn't just save us from the flood and he doesn't just save us from hell either. God's salvation goes farther than that. And um, it goes as far as to be uh, salvation from sin as well. And
0: I think that's a really, really beautiful thing. And he wants to let you live holily. There's another archaic word for you. Holily. Yes, it is a real world. Well, with that, God love you and have a blessed day. If anyone has any thoughts, questions, or comments, please reach out to us. Remember to be supporting your local church. And again, we are Kingdom of the Logos.